Well, welcome back to our study, Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers. Tonight's question is, was there a, a global flood, all right? We've got our daylight savings time and everyone's adjusted, I'm sure, all right? We'll go about 45 minutes today. Uh, if it goes an hour, I apologize. There's usually a lot of questions on this one as well. And uh, as we deal with this issue, there's a tremendous amount of information out there. And if you want videos, if you want magazines, if you want books, I can give you titles of things that will help you explain our Christian faith and our Christian worldview and the evidence that supports what we believe. This is not a fairy tale, right? Sadly though, what you're going to find is when you're talking to people, the image on the screen is what they have in mind, right? When you talk about Noah's Ark and the flood, it's a cute story, right? Uh, I'll bet if I took a, a, an inventory of, of grandma and grandpa's bookshelf or mom and dad's bookshelf. Uh, you've got some children's book about Noah and the ark. And, and the images probably look something like this, all right? So it's a cute little boat and there's animals and they're all having a good time, all right? Uh, we had a book for the girls when they were growing up. It was called Noah's Rockin' Boat. <laughs> Noah's Rockin' Boat. And in this little board book, uh, you know, with the thick cardboard pages, right? Uh, the, the, the animals would move, all right? They would sway back and forth as you turned the page or if you rocked it. And so, oh, sure enough, just that's what it was like. And, and they were rocking on the boat and they were having a good old time. What you're going to see, if you take a look on the screen, is if you read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the flood account, you're going to see it's not a cute little boat. It is a barge. It is a box, an ark. It's a chest, all right? It's, a, it's just a huge barge. There's no engine on it. There's no sail on it. It's not meant to go water skiing. It's just meant to float. And what we're going to find when we take a look at Scripture and then take a look at the world, there's evidence to back this up. It's not a fairy tale and it's not, certainly not a children's story. All right, let's pray and we'll take a look at the timeline on the board here. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to look at what you had done once in the world. You had judged it, but you'd also provided a way of salvation. And Lord, I pray that we'd understand that through Christ we have this way of salvation because you will judge the world again, but you will not use water in that second judgment. Lord, we pray that we'd understand the importance of this account and the truthfulness of it to be able to explain to people, you are a God who judges, but you're also a God who saves. And that salvation is provided for us in Christ. We love you, Lord, because you love us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take a look on the board here, our objective tonight is to be able to understand the evidence that backs up what we believe, the biblical evidence first and foremost from God's inspired and errant word, then take a look at historical evidence for this global flood, and then we want to take a look at geological evidence. If the planet was underwater, there, there should be evidence of that, all right? So that's what we want to be able to do, and so to then talk to people. And, and again, as I've mentioned before, with Generation Z, uh, those born between 1999 and 2015, they're not even thinking about God. And so you and I can break the ice and bring up these things. And when people automatically default to this because their parents had a book when they were growing up and it was a little kiddie book, all right, you can understand where they're coming from. 
you can point out the evidence to, po- to, to show that it's not a fairy tale and it was this giant barge and was meant to just float and to, and to keep people alive. The other reality is you may have some people who don't know the reference to Noah. And so there's a growing biblical illiteracy and big biblical ignorance of just fundamental Bible stories. So if you talk about Noah and the flood, you may have some people in Generation Z who go, who? What? And, and it's one of those stories you think, well, everybody knows about the flood and Noah. And, and, and the reality is they don't, right? If you take a look on the board, just a rough timeline. If you use the Genesis genealogies, chapter 5, chapter 11. So chapter 5 is before the flood. Chapter 11 is after the flood. And you literally do the math. You literally add up the ages of people and say, well, if this guy is the father of this guy and this guy is the father of that guy, what does it all add up to? That's where you have some scholars who believe, well, the earth is not billions of years old because there's no geological evidence for that. But if you use a biblical record, it's, it's thousands of years old, right? And so just ballparking, because nobody knows for sure the exact, right? If Adam's around 4,000 B.C., about 1,600 years later, there's a global flood and the, and the planet's underwater. So that's when Noah fits into the picture. Then later in Genesis 12, you get Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons, right? We should do that as a break, just to stretch keep the blood flowing, all right? So Father Abraham, you know about him in, in Genesis 12, and, and, and that's around ballpark figure around 2000 BC. Then Jesus, 30 AD, and now here we are. There will come an end. So in a Christian worldview, history is linear. And so it has a beginning and it has an end. And God who started everything is gonna end everything, and then the eternal states kick in. The eternal state of heaven being with the Lord and the eternal state of hell being without the Lord. The the simplest way to put it. You're either with him or without him. Jesus in Matthew 25 talks about, well, when I come back, it's like uh, a shepherd separating sheep from goats. There's only two teams. You're either saved or unsaved, right? And it has nothing to do with your bank account. It has nothing to do with uh, your political affiliation, your socioeconomic status, whatever, right? It's either saved or unsaved. So there's a, a judgment. The importance of understanding this is God has judged the earth once already, and he provided a way of salvation for mankind. They could not save themselves. God had to provide a way of salvation, and he did it for all of us in Christ. And so in the end, when he judges again, if you're not within the quote-unquote ark of salvation, if you're not within Christ, you're in deep trouble. There's only one way you're going to make it, all right? So on the outline there, biblical references for a worldwide flood. If you want to jot yourself a note, this is not exhaustive. I just gave you some of the highlights, all right? So in Genesis 6 through 9, that's the flood account with Noah. Matthew and Luke are references from Jesus. So Jesus himself talks about a global flood and Noah. If he's lying, we're in deep trouble because then he's not a perfect savior for us, all right? You've got references from 2 Peter there, chapter 2, chapter 3. On the outline, you'll also see 1 Peter 3. We'll look at Psalm 104. We'll look at uh, uh, Isaiah 54. So again, this is not an exhaustive list right here. But there are many passages in Scripture that talk about a flood. 
And so what do we base our faith on? It's what God has revealed. We're sinners in need of a savior and Christ is our savior and we stand on the inspired and errant word of God. It's our source of doctrine. It's our norm of doctrine. It's how we measure things. Is this true or is this not? But let's do it like this. What happens with this global flood? Well, eight people, Noah and his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their boy. So I'm just giving you some background information if you've never read Genesis 6 through 9. It's Noah and his wife and Shem, Ham, Japheth, their sons and their wives. So there's eight people, right? Now, there's a speculation that Noah's wife was named Joan. Joan of Arc. You get it? You get it? Oh, it's comedic gold. I know you're going to post that on Facebook. I know you're going to put that up there, all right? And that's a groaner foul. Okay. So you've got Noah and his wife, unknown name, right? Shem, Ham, Japheth, the boys, right? And their wives. Again, we don't know their names. There's eight people. Then all of humanity is now being told what Adam and Eve are told, right? These, these eight people. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And then eventually the human family comes from that, all right? If we put in Tower of Babel, it's in here, after the flood and before Abraham, right? So some are speculating this is a couple hundred years later. Again, there's, there's, there's no verse that it, when you read about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and, and Genesis 11 uh, about when it happened. But the speculation is, well, there's people there and they're all congregating together and they're told not to. God told everybody to spread out. And mankind is being disobedient again. We're just going to stay here, and now we're going to build this tower, and we're going to live here. And and God confuses their languages, so they scatter. And so when you read Genesis 10, it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth's lineages and where they spread out in the Middle East, into Africa, and the like, right? So when you read that, you got to understand, what happened after the flood, Tower of Babel? What happened at Tower of Babel? These people spread out across the planet. And that explains why there are 270 flood stories across the planet. There are 272 specifically. There's 272 flood stories across the planet. When you read Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, it is the longest and most detailed flood account of the 272 that are in existence. So you find this information here And it's the longest, most detailed. What do you find in the 272 other ones out there? You find snippets of it. And I just gave you three examples. And there's scholars that can tell you the the details about all 272, and it's beyond the scope of, of what we're doing. But just to talk about the historical evidence of this, all right? The Hawaiians talk about one good man. His name was Nu'u. Huh. It's just a coincidence. His family got in a canoe. It was a giant canoe. And then there was a global flood. And in the canoe were all sorts of animals. And this family survives a global flood. So the Hawaiians talk about Nu'u. And what do you read in Scripture? You read about Noah and these animals surviving in this chest. The Chinese, this is fascinating, talk about Fuhai. Now look at the number. It's Fuhai's wife. Three sons, three daughters. They have the exact number, eight people surviving, but they get the relationship wrong. When these people scattered from the Tower of Babel, they could keep telling the story, but they got some of the facts wrong. And so when the Chinese tell the story, well, eight people survived a global flood. 
in Fuhai's boat, Fuhai's wife, the three sons and three daughters. No, it's three daughters-in-law. In China, there's a temple and there's a drawing of this Fuhai flood. And there's the ship that Fuhai's on. And there's a dove flying back to the boat with an olive branch in its mouth. That's an exact detail you find in Genesis. And the Chinese carried that to this day and kept telling the story in a very similar way. Final one of the Toltecs. The Toltecs said there was a giant flood. Now, this is their, this is their history. They go, the earth lived, was in existence for over 1,700 years it's almost dead on to the biblical record. So the Toltecs say, uh, the earth was around for about 1,700 years and there was a global flood and no one survived except for these people in a closed chest. And then afterwards, the survivors multiplied and then decided to build a huge tower. So the Toltecs tell the story of the Tower of Babel. By the way, if you're interested in that, there's dozens of Tower of, ba- uh, Tower of Babel stories on the planet. And so the Toltecs say, well, they were building this tower and then a god came and confused their languages so these people spread. And the Toltecs said, we started from a group of seven families who migrated and eventually settled in, in southern Mexico. So when people go, you really believe that book? Yes, I believe God's inspired an errant word. Really? Why? Is this blind faith? Well, no, it's not blind faith, all right? Because what I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. And so what do I see in history? I see historical records where there's 272 flood stories across the planet. There's Tower of Babel stories that are very similar. But this is the most detailed and longest flood account that there is, right? What I find fascinating is this happens, these people after the Tower of Babel go out and, 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 and go to the different parts of the planet and they tell the story, but they miss parts of it or uh, misconstrue it or, or, or drop it or whatever. But isn't it fascinating that it's there? When people go, oh, it's just coincidence. It's just coincidence. I go, really? It, 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 a global flood story is just a coincidence? My favorite comic book character is, is Spider-Man, all right? Now, Captain Marvel came out and it was great, all right? And if any of you have seen it, we'll, we'll debrief later, all right? But there's not... 272 versions of Spider-Man across the planet. And every culture has come up with this story of, uh, about a guy who, who has the proportionate strength, speed, and agility of a spider. Isn't that interesting? No, it's an American thing, and then we export it everywhere. But the reality is, well, these just all generated all over the place by themselves. No, it's not coincidence. There's this truth, it's spread out, that makes most sense. And that's why you've got these stories out there, 272 of them. Now, what does Scripture say? I'm giving you the Reader's Digest condensed version. Spend the time, use the cross-references I gave you, go back and look at this yourself, all right? So you can be well-versed, right? Second Timothy talks about you and I should be a workman who's approved, who can handle the Word of God, all right? So let's show ourselves approved. We know what God's Word says. It's not what Brad said. Well, Brad said. It's not what I said. It's what God's Word says. So know it. Take the time. Look at these passages. Check it out, all right? How deep was this, all right? Well, the mountains in Scripture, it says, were covered by a little over 20 feet of water, all right? Normally, you'll hear people say this. So the planet was underwater. Yes. There's not enough water on the planet to flood the earth. Yes, there is. 
So this is where you need Joe geologist, all right, to, to help you understand this. If you had a big enough bulldozer and you just started bulldozing mountain ranges and flattening out the planet, but then you started pushing all those mountains into the depths of the oceans, you'd push all this and smooth out the planet to make it like a cue ball. <laughs> what would you find? The planet is underwater by 1.7 miles. There's plenty of water on planet Earth. There's a ton of water. Now, later I'll show you a slide where you can see, for example, the Mariana Trench. That is an incredibly deep trench. When people go, oh, where is this flood water? It's here on the planet. Most of it's in the ocean depths. It could never happen. Sure it could, but we have these mountains that are up. We've got these deep trenches in the oceans. But if you'd smooth the thing out, the whole planet's underwater by a mile and a half. How long is the flood? Everybody knows 40 days and 40 nights. Here's what you got to do. You got to look at these cross-references. Noah and his family are on the ark for 371 days, so a little over a year. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we're going to talk about where that water comes from. We'll deal with that in a minute. And then for about 150 days, the, the mountains are underwater. And then eventually the water starts to recede. And we're going to see in Psalm 104, the mountains arose, the valley sunk down. So where did that flood water go? Well, it ran off the mountains and it went down into the ocean depths. So the mountain peaks start to, to show up. And then eventually, Noah is given permission by God to get out. Remember, because he sent out the dove and it brought back the olive branch. And then he sent it out and it didn't come back. Oh, well, I guess we can de-ark now, all right? So let's get off the ark and God gives him the, the, the green light to go out. So that's the duration. It's 371 days, all right? The 40 days and 40 nights is what everybody's familiar with, but that's the water coming up from the ground and the rain coming down, all right? But the whole time in the box is a little over a year. Where did it come from? In my teaching career in 31 years, I've had two students who went on to be meteorologists. So this slide is for them. Meteorologists will point out, we do not have enough cloud cover on the planet to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and flood the earth. And so your favorite weather forecaster, they, they could explain this to you. We don't have enough cloud cover to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and flood the earth. <gasps> but that's one of these things where you've got to read the text, right? Genesis 7:11 says this. The floodgates were opened and the springs of the great deep burst forth, all right? So the floodgates Water came down from the sky, but water came up from the ground. The springs of the great deep were released. If you're interested in this, some creation uh, scientists talk about it as catastrophic plate tectonics. And they'll say it like this. The belief is, yeah, you had water coming down from the sky, 40 days, 40 nights, but it wasn't just that. That's the source of the flood water. The water comes up from the ground. Now, you know there's water under the ground, right? And the belief is we had a ton more under, and the water shot up through some kind of fissure. Some speculate, if you ever look at a map of the planet, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. So look at a topographical map of the planet and the oceans, and there's a, there's a a ridge, it's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, pretty much dead center of the Atlantic Ocean, and it runs around the planet there. And so the idea is, did water come up through that, and then that was part of this, the, the springs of the great deep bursting forth, and then the floodgates of heaven opening. That's where the water comes from. 
So God tells Noah to build a box, an ark, a chest. All right, how big is it? It's not Noah's rock and boat. It's a big barge. It's a football field and a half long. It's four and a half stories tall. It's 75 feet wide. When I taught at Milwaukee Lutheran for a quarter century, I would tell kids, go to our football field, go to the visitor side. Look across the football field and then look at the field house. You can now get a scale for how big the barge is. It's a football field and a half, and our field house is about 30 feet high, so you need another half of a field house. It's just ginormous. Has anyone been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Praise the Lord. Yes, my, my wife and, and, and girls, we went. And so, uh, pastor's going to have an announcement at the end about another trip. So, you should go see a scale replica of the thing, right? It's outstanding. By the way, when Answers in Genesis built that, they said one of the things that people are most fascinated with is this Bible account. And so that's why they built it. They go, let's build an attraction where people can see it. And it's not a little boat. It's a real way for God to save eight people. And now God's got the ultimate plan of salvation in, in Christ. So it's a ginormous barge, right? Here's, a, here's another image to, to kind of put it into scale. So at the bottom there, they're using 437 feet, all right? Why? The measurement is in cubits. What's a cubit? The belief is a cubit is from the elbow to tallest finger. Now, in an average adult male, and that's the key word, average adult male, how long is that? Well, it's about yay long, all right? And so they, they go, ah, it's about 18 inches, average. So a cubit is 18 inches, and then they do the math, all right? So that's why you'll see some people saying, well, it's 450 or 437, whatever. You get the idea. It's, it's big, all right? They've got a 747 there, just in scale, Notice above the 747, they have two dinosaurs. We're going to talk about animals on, on board. And then you can see uh, to the left of the 747, an elephant and a giraffe, all right? And again, those are adult animals, and we're going to talk about this later. The wisdom of not bringing adult animals, bringing juveniles on board, would make much more sense because what Noah and his family have to do is be fruitful and multiply, reproduce, and fill the earth. That's what the animals have to do. It would make sense to bring juveniles on board and not grandma and grandpa, whatever, dinosaur, elephant, or whatever, right? No offense to grandma and grandpa, right? Um, how big is this, all right? Now, this is where math comes in, and I've told you I'm allergic to math, right? But when people do the volume thing, they go, well, it's 1.5 million cubic feet. Okay, I don't know what that means. Well, it's like 522 railroad boxcars strung together. Oh, can you imagine sitting through that train? <laughs> Honey, I'm going to be late. Uh, how big is it? It's ginormous in size. And then when people go, so for over a year, you had to have supplies for the animals and for Noah and the family? Come on now. There's a feasibility study done, uh, been, been done on this, and, and the estimate is you could take just a quarter of the whole ark for storage and have the rest for the, for the rooms and, and everything alike, okay? What's fascinating about the dimensions is shipbuilders point out this is nearly incapsizable. It's perfect for floating. And so what shipbuilders have done, have, they, they've built scale models and put them into wave tanks and simulated tidal wave conditions. 
And they said, you could have a hundred foot waves hitting that thing and you could not turn that thing over. All it has to do is float. There's not oars on it that they're going to go somewhere. There's not a sail on it that they're going to cruise around. All it has to do is float. And so when the, the shipbuilders look at it, they go, Let's see if this would float. Yes, you, could, you, could, you really couldn't capsize it. It's brilliant. If you can see the little picture at the top, there's that little toy boat, and a, and a tidal wave would easily knock that thing over. But that barge, that box, would just float there, and it's brilliant. But again, it's from the mind of God. That's why. When you read Genesis chapter 6, that's the, the start of the flood account, Noah's given 120 years to build this. So sometimes people bring up, oh, how could a man do this? Well, it's not him alone. He's got his family, so there's seven others. Plus, he could have hired people. He could have brought in other people to work on it. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. There's no doubt that people are going, hey, what are you doing, Noah? And so he's explaining what's going on, all right? Long story short, he has 120 years. Now, just step aside for a minute and think about that. Hey, Noah, what are you doing today? Working on the ark. You want to go watch a ball game? I'm working on the ark. No, you're, you're really persistent, consistent. You're focused. Yeah. It's kind of important. Apply that to ourselves. Do we have that focus? Do we have that understanding? What are you doing today? Because there's, there's judgment coming. What, what are you doing? Well, I, I'm, I'm not working on the ark. I'm not sharing the good news. I, I, I'm doing my own thing. And I'll get around to that later. No, I didn't have time for that. I'll get around to it later. There's work to be done now. Salvation work. This is usually the biggest objection people will bring up. Well, sure, there was a flood, but it was a local flood. It was a flood in the Middle East. And so what God did is told people that there was a flood. And so it wasn't a flood for the planet. It was a flood for the Middle East. Now, the problem with that is read the text. Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. No one survives. All the mountains are covered. All life is wiped out. It doesn't say just in the Middle East. The other thing to think about is this. If it really is a local flood in that area, why is Noah spending 120 years building a box? What should he do? Move. Whenever you hear about a, a hurricane coming, what do they do? They tell, evacuate. We're evacuating New Orleans or Florida or whatever it is. You don't stop. Well, let's build a boat now. No, get out. So if Noah has a 120-year head start, get out of town. Move. And he's got plenty of time to move to a different part of the planet. But there is nowhere to go. You cannot escape this. You have to construct this. Build it to my specifications. I'm providing the way of salvation for you. Salvation is found in no other way. You're not going to tread water. You're not going to climb to the highest mountain because that's going to be underwater by 20 feet. You're going to be in deep trouble. The scripture is clear. Noah is the only one who survives. And I gave you Jesus talking about this, Matthew 24. Peter talking about it, 1 Peter, also in 2 Peter. No one makes it, Jesus says, Peter says, except for Noah and his family. Are they lying? No. They're telling the truth. There was one way to be saved, and God provided it, right? But God also promised he would never flood the whole earth again. 
So I gave you the Isaiah 54 passage, and you can look at it sometime, besides what you know in Genesis. I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky, and every time you see it, it's a reminder to God not to flood the whole earth, like God needs a post-it note. <laughs> oh, yeah. I won't do that again. How wonderful. I'm never going to flood the whole earth. Think about this if it was just a local flood. And I'll put a rainbow in the sky. I'm never going to send a local flood again. God, you promise breaker. God, there are local floods all over the place. How could you do that to us, God? You said you'd never send a flood like that again. But they come all the time. And that's why when people go, I think it was a local flood. The the rainbow covenant makes no sense then. Because there's local floods everywhere. And God has repeatedly then broken his promise. And he's not a good God. So it's got to be a global flood. And as he said, I am never going to inundate the earth again. But one day I will inundate the earth, and it'll be with fire. And that's what Second Peter's talking about. And there's no escape except through Christ. Peter talks about this. And, and that's why, if you've got a Bible, get it out from the pew. If you brought your own, if you want to open it up, let's go to Second Peter in chapter 3. Now, when you read Second Peter 2, what you're going to find is Peter saying, Hey, you got to remember, there were angels who rebelled. We talked about this last week, and and God judged them. There was no salvation for them. But there was Sodom and Gomorrah, and God judged those cities, but there was salvation for Lot and his family. And there was a global flood, and God judged the earth, but there was salvation for Noah. And and, and in the context, when you read 2 Peter 2, he's saying, look, false teachers will be judged. God's not messing around. But God also has mercy, and he provides salvation. So now you get to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're in verses 3 to 7. The context here is Peter's talking about the end. He goes, look, judgment's going to fall. God talked about this. We need to understand this, all right? And then he says this, you're in 2 Peter 3, we're in verses 3 to 7. First of all, I'm reading from the NIV version. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. So scoffers, mockers, ridiculers, all right? Now he gives an example of what the scoffing or ridiculing or mocking is like. They'll say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Come on! Sun comes up, sun goes down. Every day it's the same thing. Come on. Really? Oh, there's going to be judgment day. Oh, I'm scared. Verse 5. But they deliberately forget. Those are powerful words. They deliberately forget. If you're reading King James, they purposefully ignore. Think about this. If I deliberately forget to do something on April 15th, what am I doing? And not file my taxes. If I deliberately forget, if I purposefully ignore the tax man, I can play that game as much as, well, there's no IRS. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of that. What do you mean file? We don't have to file. He goes, they're playing a game and they will not deal with reality. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So remember in Genesis, the earth was formless, and what did God do? He started with light, then he separated water from water. That's what he's talking about there. Look at verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So where did the water come from? Well, it came up from the ground, Genesis 7-11, but also the, uh, the floodgates of heavens were open. That water above came down. By the same word, verse 7, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
That's a, that's a powerful section. He goes, look, there's some people, they don't want to deal with creation evidence. They don't want to deal with flood evidence. But it's like saying, ah, eh, there's no IRS. I, I, I don't have to worry about that. Really? Keep telling yourself that. You're going to have to pay the piper. And so the reality of the situation is, look, you can ignore creation and flood all you want, but it's to your peril. And God is reaching out in mercy. He wants all men to be saved. There are tremendous books. The, the, the first one, it was called The Genesis Flood, uh, written by John Whitcomb. And it really began uh, over 50 years ago, the modern-day apologetics movement in the sense of, yeah, why do, why do, what, what are we cowering for? Here's God's Word. There's evidence to back this up. So it's this great volume, The Genesis Flood, if you want to check it out. And so some of the objections that have been raised through the years are addressed. I'm just going to uh, summarize them real quickly. Well, we know that the American Indians were here in North America, South America, uh, before the dating of the, of the Bible and, and the Bible people, so we know that the Bible's wrong, right? And the question is, how are you dating these things, right? What's the reliability of the dating method, right? Uh, so remember what the Toltecs say. The Toltecs say, well, the earth was around for 1,700 years, and then there was a global flood, and then we tried to build a big tower afterwards, and after a while, our language were confused by a god, and then we, we spread out after that, and we traveled for, for a long time and eventually settled in Mexico, all right? So this idea of when was it, and, oh, well, the earth is billions of years old and all that, how are people dating things, all right? So that's one question. This one. Well, how could Noah and his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives, these eight people, produce everybody? Red, red, yellow, black, and white. How is this possible, all right? This is genetics. And it is possible. But you don't start with white people. And you don't start with black people, all right? You start with brown people. On the screen, remember the Punnett Square? Raise your hand if you remember the Punnett Square, all right? Some of you are breaking out in hives right now. I know. You're like, oh, don't make me do the Punnett Square thing. Oh, I don't want to do this again. So the Punnett Square, the big A and the little A and the big B and the little B and all that kind of stuff, if you start in the very center, notice those four center squares, light gray, all right? If you had people that were not white, not black, but brown skin, they have a genetic capability to produce, and this is just Genetics, it's, it's the Punnett square. Dark, darker through more melanin, right? So skin color is determined by the amount of melanin. And that's the upper left-hand corner. Or less melanin, white, all right, lower right corner, and everything in between. I'm going to show you some pictures in the next slide, slide of babies, uh, twins born to various families across the planet, you'll see one has more melanin than the other. These are not photoshopped, and when these happen, it's always noteworthy. It's like, wow, look at these twins that were born. One's darker than the other. So the, the babies uh, in the bassinet on the left, one very dark compared to the other. One has more melanin. Upper right, two twin girls. One what looks white, one looks brown. And the, the twins at the bottom from, from England, probably the most fascinating one, those are twins. And you'd swear, you'd go, they are not. It's like, no, they are. So here's one couple, and they have these twin children, and they're so dramatically different. So when people go, well, how is this possible? Sometimes people will read into Scripture something that's not there. They go, well, at the Tower of Babel, God created, quote, unquote, the races. No, there's one race, the human race. It says he confused their languages, so they spread out. 
doesn't say anything, and then he, he added a little more melanin to these people and a little less melanin to those people. doesn't say that, right? But again, it's just genetics. They spread out and the like. How could everybody come from these eight people? Genesis 10, again, does not talk about races. There's one race, the human race. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Genesis 10 is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So on the screen there, the red section, the yellow section, the green section, that's where the boys and their descendants spread out, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so it's called the Table of Nations from Genesis 10. Oftentimes people will say, well, I think the Genesis 6 through 9 text is just again about Israel and Israel's history. So Israel could know their past. And when you, you, you listen to that argument, you go, no, when you're reading Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it's not about the nation of Israel. Because Abraham doesn't come on to the scene until Genesis 12. That's when you get Abraham and his descendants and then the Hebrews, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the rest of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 is the history of humanity. Where did we come from? Well, from one, one people. And Eve, her name means living because she's the mother of all the living. And so what happened? Well, they were so sinful, God shut it down and started over with eight. And then people spread out from there. And then eventually God picks a guy and he has the Savior coming through, through them, the, the people from Abraham. How did Noah take care of all these animals? Well, one, he doesn't have to go out and lasso them, all right? So he's riding a horse and roping them and come on, little doggy, and that's not happening, all right? So they're coming to him. So read the text. The animals are coming to him, all right? And how many animals come? It's fascinating to listen to zoologists who say, well, this is what you'd need, all right? He doesn't take every animal on the planet at the time of the ark or time of the flood. All he has to do is bring kinds, two of each kind, all right? So, th so think family. And so does he have to bring, for example, every type of dog that there is? No. He's got to bring a couple of dog kinds, all right, this male and female. And then through the reproducing of these dog kinds or how many dog kinds he needs, that's where he can get whatever there are today. And I don't know how many there are, 500 different dog kinds or whatever. So some will estimate you only need about 1,400 different kinds of animals times two, around 3,000 animals on board. The highest I've seen is, well, you need about 17,000 kinds of animals. Again, times two, it's about 35,000, all right? But here's the key. No matter if it's in the low thousands or, or higher thousands, tens of thousands, you don't take the adult. You take the juvenile, male and female. And then what do you do? Well, they're told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. After the, hour, after the flood, they, they're told to go out now, all right? And so it would make more sense to take the young so they could have many more generations. And then when they're on that ark for a year, they're not full grown. They don't take up as much size. The food consumption, the waste production, all that kind of stuff, it's going to be easier to manage, right? Plus, is Noah and his family just on roller skates every day for 371 days taking care of every animal? No, all right? There are animals many times that will go into hibernation mode in a dark enclosed place or in bad weather. So hibernation would explain taking care of some of them. The fish thing I never even thought of, but I appreciate the book, The Genesis Flood. They brought up the objection people have. Well, what about freshwater and saltwater fish? There's no, it's not, there's no aquarium on the ark, all right? You don't have to worry about any of those, all right? And so the whole issue of freshwater and saltwater fish can be explained in a couple of different ways. One, fish can adapt, all right? You've got salmon in freshwater and salt. Also, there is layering of fresh over salt water. On the screen is, 
is uh, the Amazon River depositing into the Atlantic and the, the brown water is the Amazon and the darker water is the, is the, the uh, salt water of the Atlantic. So you can have those waters separated. So that may be an explanation. Again, nobody knows for sure. God's watching over this. And then people wonder, well, how did the animals get to all the different places on the planet? All right, how did the kangaroos get to Australia? It's kind of hard to see on the screen, but you can find any map that shows the continental shelf. It's the perimeter around the continents where if you lower the ocean, you, you, you can walk continent to continent, right? And so when you listen to people, uh, 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 sociologists or anthropologists talk about well, where these people groups come from. Well, they migrated and went from continent to continent. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, everybody understands it, migration. So after the flood, was this migration going on with people and animals? Most likely. And then what happened? Water levels rise and those continental shelves are covered and now you can't walk continent to continent, right? Genesis 10.25 sometime, if you get a chance, look at that. Uh, it's, it's, well, let's turn there now. It's, it's fascinating. Genesis 10.25. So this is uh, the genealogy section in the table of nations. And uh, you're going to the descendants of, of, of Shem in Genesis 10 and verse 25. So Genesis 5 is the genealogies of people before the flood. Genesis 10, Genesis 11 is genealogies of people after the flood. And Genesis 10, again, is the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and where they spread out and all that kind of stuff. It's a fascinating passage in Genesis 10, verse 25. So you got descendants of Shem and got all these people. And then you get to verse 25. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother's named Joktan. And so your footnote after Peleg will say division. We called this boy division because in his day the earth was divided. And so Bible scholars go, oh, in his day, the earth was divided. Was that by language? And so he was born at the time of the Tower of Babel, and so we called him division because we started spreading out from there. Or was it in his day, the earth was divided where waters rose and we couldn't walk continent to continent? Who knows? Who knows? Global implication or geological implications before the flood, all right? As we're coming to a close here. Well, is there any evidence that the planet was underwater? Well, the belief is before the flood, you could have had mountains not as high, oceans not as deep. Why? Psalm 104, let's flip there. Psalm 104, flip there. The idea that you, you could have had a warmer, more uh, conducive climate would make sense because, again, everything was perfect on the planet before the, uh, before the flood and before the fall, obviously. Uh, but in Psalm 104, we're in verses 5 through 9. You've got the psalmist in a praise psalm talking about, Lord, we praise you. And he, he kind of gives you a, a Reader's Digest condensed version of, of Old Testament events. And in Psalm 104, here's his flood uh, um, account in an abbreviated sense. Again, Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9. He, God, set the earth on its foundations. It can, be ne it can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your, at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to the flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. Now watch this, verse 9. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again 
will they cover the earth. So when he promised in Genesis 9 with the, with the rainbow, I'll never flood the whole earth again, the psalmist is picking up on that going, you set them a boundary and they'll, they'll never cover the whole earth. Yes, but where did they go? They went down off the mountains into the depths that you set for them. The mountains arose, the valley sunk down. When you listen to creation scientists talk about catastrophic plate tectonics and all the different things that might have gone on, this makes sense, but I'm not a geologist, so we'll just keep it simple. One, what are the implications geologically after this flood? Well, now you've got these mountain ranges like Mount Everest and this Mariana Trench that are incredibly deep. So where's that ocean water? Well, it's in the ocean depths, right? If you can see on the screen, here's a cutaway view of the depth of that Mariana Trench in, in uh, the ocean. Uh, 11,000 uh, 11,000 meters, I think that's what it, what it has on the screen there. And then, and then there's a dotted line for Mount Everest. That's 8,000-some meters above sea level, all right? So it's, it's a trench deeper than the, the height of Mount Everest by, by great 3,000 meters. And so where is this flood water? Well, Psalm 104, the mountains arose, the valley sunk down, and the waters went down into that. They'll never flood the whole earth again. Thank you, Lord, all right? So deep oceans, larger oceans, all right? And then, every mountain range on the planet, you can find marine fossils on them. So here's a picture of a man in the Andes Mountains in South America. Those are petrified clams. What are petrified clams doing up in the Andes Mountains? Well, they were deposited there. Yeah. When? During the flood. You've got these major mountain ranges across the planet. There's fossilized sea life on these. Why? Because they were underwater. When you talk about a global flood, yeah, there's, there's evidence for it, right? That's a powerful one. And most of us don't know that, right? And sedimentary rock is another one. Sediments, all right, hopefully we're familiar with that when we, we know our, our rudimentary science. Sedimentary rock, there are levels of this spread across continents, that's just unbelievable. On the screen, it shows this sediment layer that's deposited over a major portion of the United States, and you'd find a similar thing across, for example, Europe and Africa, th these deposits of sediment that span continents. W where is that from? Well, remember, it's sediment, sedimentary rock. It's laid down by water, and it stretches over vast expanses. It's argument for a global flood. When you talk about fossil fuels, fascinating. Fossil fuels, what are you looking at? Well, buried plant and animal life, right? Oil, buried uh, animal life can produce oil. Buried plant life produces coal, all right? And that's what the illustration is there. The, uh, the, the picture I, I, I pulled from the internet said, millions of years ago, the earth was covered with, with, with forests, and then they turned into these uh, 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 deposits and eventually formed coal. And I'd go, yeah, I, I agree with you, except for the millions of years, all right? Yeah, there was a ton of foliage on the planet, and it was buried. And what happened? Yeah, it became a fuel as coal. Fossil graveyards are, are found, and some of them are absolutely fascinating. 95% of fossils are marine organisms. 95% of fossils are marine organisms. 5% are not marine organisms. Why? 
Think about it. If there's water raising, rising water, you and I will scramble to high ground. So will animals. So will vertebrate animals. We'll, we'll try to get up to high ground. And so you're not going to have a tremendous amount of humans fossilized or animal, uh, vertebrate animals fossilized at, like mammals and the like. But you do occasionally. And so in these fossil graveyards, sometimes these animals are preserved perfectly. Other times it looks like they were just ripped apart and then dumped here. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. What in the world's going on? When you read the Genesis flood or the world that perished, or another good book to read. It's a simpler read, The World That Perished. They point out these fossil graveyards, some of these animals are all mixed together and they wouldn't belong in the same area. Why are they there? Because it looks like they were just dumped there through an inundation of water, right? But here's the main thing you and I have to understand about making a fossil. It's not millions of years. Well, you need a long time to make a fossil. No, you don't. You need three things. You need to quickly bury it in the right soil conditions and have a tremendous amount of pressure and you can make a fossil. It's not the amount of time. Well, you need millions and billions of years. No, you don't, right? Here's a hat that's fossilized. What's fascinating is listen to miners. They'll talk about cave-ins where they'll scramble and get out and leave their equipment because of cave-ins and later the equipment becomes fossilized. It's quickly buried under high pressure and right soil conditions. And time is not the magic factor. Well, it took millions and millions of years, right? So how do you make a fossil? Well, if the fish is alive and then it's dead, right, <laughs> in your aquarium, you know what happens. It floats to the top and it'll sink down, right? That's not going to become a fossil. Other critters are going to pick it and eat it and that's it, right? But what's going to happen to this fish to become fossilized? Well, it's swimming along and then it gets quickly buried under right soil conditions and high pressure and eventually become a fossil. So these last couple of slides are fossilized marine organisms. They're frozen in time and space. That's what's absolutely fascinating. Quick burial, right soil conditions, high pressure. This is an ichthyosaur and it's giving birth. This ocean-going creature was in the birth process and it was fossilized. How do you make a fossil? Well, it takes a million years, it takes a billion years. No, it doesn't. It's got to be quickly buried under high pressure and right soil conditions and then it's frozen in time. Here's a fish eating fish. This fish is eating another fish. It's frozen in time. The dollar is there just to put it in scale how big it is, right? It's quickly buried under right soil conditions and high pressure. So when people go, you really believe in a worldwide flood? Yeah, I believe God's inspired and errant word. Really? Yeah. And what I read in God's word is what I see in God's world. Because what do you see all across the planet? Billions of dead things laid down by water in rock layers all over the place. It's not a fairy tale. And the main thing to understand is this. God, you judged the earth once. Yes, and I provided a way of salvation. I've provided a way of salvation in Jesus. And I will judge the earth again. You need to get people to the ark, <laughs> the lifesaver, that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth.